When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Sleep Money is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code SLATEMONEY. Hello, and welcome to the matching gift episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York, and on today's show, we will follow up last week's philanthropy special with a look at charities as venture capitalists in the pharmaceutical industry. We will also talk about Uber, because who isn't talking about Uber these days? And finally, we will try to explain what's happening in Japan, where monetary policy and fiscal policy and this whole shebang called Arbonomics doesn't seem to be having quite the effect it was meant to be having. And of course, we will then finally do our usual numbers lightning round. I am joined back in the studio. It's a family reunion episode of Slate Money by the regular panelists, Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hello, Kathy. Hi, Felix. And Jordan Weissman of Slate's very own Moneybox column. Feels good to be back. It is good to have you both back. So we are going to start with philanthropharmacology or pharmaphilanthropy or something like that. We're going to start with this amazing story of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, it raises about $130 million a year in donations. And one of the things which it does with those donations, or used to do with those donations, is it invests some of them, about $150 million overall, in a small biotech company called Vertex Pharmaceuticals. It gave this money, $150 million, to Vertex Pharmaceuticals so that Vertex could try and develop a cystic fibrosis drug. And guess what? Vertex Pharmaceuticals did exactly that. They created this drug called Calideco. And it looks like it's going to be a very successful drug. And there's a certain number of people with cystic fibrosis who this drug is going to help. And it's a very expensive drug. And 
because of the deal that the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation drove, they have a right to a whole bunch of the royalties from the sales of this drug. And they have now sold that right for, wait for this, $3.3 billion. How many years did they have to fundraise to get that? <laughs> That's a lot of years of fundraising to get to $3.3 billion. They have said that rather than just take the royalties over the next however many decades, they'd rather have the money up front and front load their investment in further biopharmaceutical research and put billions of dollars in now. That's the, that's the idea. So, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. And, like, lots of questions of conflict of interest are coming up. But before we go there, I was just trying to, like, gather some information and some data about how big pharma phil- philanthropy is. And I was, so I was just looking at some numbers. So the NIH has a, an annual budget of, like, about $30 billion. And private, like, pharmaceutical companies do research and medical stuff, for, and they're about two or three times bigger. So compared to that, which is, you know, $100 billion per year, per year, this one company investing around $100 million is like, even if there's quite a few other players in that field of venture philanthropy, it's, it's order of magnitude smaller. Right. But that's across every single disease yeah. in Christendom. What we're talking about here is $150 million, which was just targeted at cystic fibrosis research, which is nowhere near those kind of numbers. And in fact, there's a very credible case to be made that a lot of this research simply would not have happened had it not been for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation money, because this drug only treats a small minority of cystic fibrosis sufferers. And so therefore, you know, it's difficult to make the case ex ante that it's going to be a hugely profitable drug. Now, ex post, it looks like it will be a hugely profitable drug, partly because, Jordan, it's going to be a hugely expensive drug. Yeah, this is one of the, the issues that Kathy was hinting at with conflict of interest. Um, I believe the, the figure said in the New York Times is about $100,000 for a course of treatment. I think $300,000. $300,000. Per year. <laughs> per year. I mean, it's massively expensive. And uh, some people, the, the cystic, uh, some advocates in the cystic fibrosis community are concerned that perhaps the foundation didn't try hard enough to bring, to, to bring down the price of the drug because they knew they stood to profit from it if it was this massively expensive course of treatment. You know, the foundation has pushed back and said, of course, we tried to do our best. The people who suffer with this disease come first. Um, but come, you know, putting the patients first means getting them the drugs. And yes. frankly, it's far from obvious that Vertex Pharmaceuticals is going to do what the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation tells it to do. They have no reason to. They're going to charge as much as they can for this drug. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those situations where it's about appearance Three, as much as $300,000 a year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's a massively, and this is this is a whole other issue, which probably another another episode. But just the, these incredibly expensive niche drugs that are becoming a problem for health insurers and for the government, um, and this is this is sort of a new entry. I think that you know, there's a sense that when you become an investor, you start to think like an investor. When a philanthropy becomes a, starts relying heavily on its endowment, it starts paying a lot more attention to its to growing it than necessarily what they could do with it. And I think that's where some of the concern of patients who rely on a foundation like this to survive in a lot of ways or for their their hope to find treatment uh, comes from. Yeah, I think everybody wants there to be solutions, uh, you know, cures to serious diseases. Um, But there are basically two conflicts that I want to bring up, and I, I don't have an answer to them. The first one is, like, what these philanthropists decide 
to focus on? Like, how big a problem is it? Is it a, pro- a rich person's problem? How expensive is it to treat? And are we actually reaching the uh, largest number of people? What, what do you mean by a rich person's problem? Well, is it a, like a rare disease that you you almost only find in first world countries, for example? Well, um, I, I, actually, I want to push back on that because, you know, these foundations are... That, that is one of the good things, actually, about medical foundations is they do target rare diseases that would otherwise would get no attention. That is, And occasionally, by targeting those rare diseases, there was actually a great article in The Atlantic some maybe a year ago about this. You end up with basic science advances that mm-hmm. are sort of unexpected and would never have happened. Right. So, And also, I'm going to yeah. you know, disagree with myself there. Medicine gets cheaper over time. Like, yeah. you know, so that's another thing, um, especially after patent things um, run out. But the other conflict that I think is sort of deeper is this idea of venture philanthropy in the first place. I looked it up because I didn't really know the term. Um, and the Harvard Business School takes credit for inventing this term. They said that they cr- released a report uh, maybe in the 90, 1990 about how um, philanthropists should learn from venture capitalists and learn how to make their philanthropic efforts more accountable and more businesslike. And so you have this, the conflict I see is like you have this sort of essentially like money-driven concept paired with philanthropy, and I'm not sure it makes sense. Well, the idea is, and I'm not, I, and I don't want to reprise last week's show too much, but the idea behind venture philanthropy is that you look f- to maximize your philanthropic return on your philanthropic dollar. Not so much that you want to maximize your financial return on investment, but just so much, just, you know, you're, you're measuring, you know, quality adjusted life years saved or something like that, and you then try and see where your money can be best spent. There's a company in New York called GiveWell, or a nonprofit in New York called GiveWell, which specializes in this kind of analysis. I have my problems with that analysis, but I think it's a little bit separate from this idea of charitable foundation, in this case, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which for better or for worse, has to concentrate its giving just on cystic fibrosis. You, you know, We start from this idea that it has got $150 million to give away, then the question is, what does it do with that money? Giving that money to a for-profit company to do research into cystic fibrosis, I think, is actually, in a way, smart. What you're doing is you're acting as a force multiplier, and you're getting a company which maybe would have put less money into this to put more of its own money into it. You're getting that kind of matching thing, which we're going to come back to later. Yeah, I mean... Again, this is a little bit different than partnering up with a, a giant pharmaceutical company, you know, Pfizer or something. If a small pharma company is is doing basic research and is doing stuff that's going to advance the field, I, I think that's as in a lot of ways as good as giving money to a university professor who's doing basic research that's going to advance the field. I can't let this opportunity pass to point out that there is selection bias in this. Like, if the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation had put in a hundred million dollars, which is a lot of money for them. Um, and nothing had happened. We wouldn't be hearing about this, but there'd be a lot of disappointed people. So this is no, like... No, there would not. That's the whole point. The, what, there are many, many single disease charitable foundations out there. All of them claim and are, all of them are trying to put money into research into their diseases. Most of that research into most of those diseases doesn't go anywhere. This is a known fact for anyone who gives money to one of these charities that you're going to be investing in R&D and most R&D doesn't work. This is known. And then every so often something really pays off. And that's the whole point. I don't. I think that's a feature, not a bug. Yes, but it, it is. But it is true that we we are talking about it now because it worked. Yes. Um, the last thing I want to say is that in spite of it being a small player in the overall field of medical research, 
what with the Warren Buffett and um, you know Bill Gates, like fifty percent of our money is going to be given to philanthropy. I think this could be, and not to mention the huge payout that these guys are getting, it's going to grow, and it might become much more much more say, prevalent. I do think the I, just one last point, uh, kind of to support some of Kathy's concerns, is if the temptation, the, the knowledge that they could make a big return giving to a company rather than a university professor is out there, it might tilt their giving over time. And the, they might end up giving to worse projects less uh, that, that have less of a chance of succeeding because of that small percentage chance of making a profit. I think that is a legitimate concern. I don't know. It's, I guess it's about these foundations being vigilant and not letting their judgment get clouded by, by money. So... We will move on to our second topic, but before we do, we have to talk about razors because, hey, we are sponsored this week by Harry's Razors. Harry's Razors is the official razor partner of Movember, so if you're growing a mustache, then you should apparently be using Harry's Razors to raise off all of the hair which is not part of your mustache on your face. So if you want Harry's Razor and they're good razors and they have five blades and they are made in a German factory which Harry's bought with its own money and it's cutting out middlemen and it's trying to create the first vertical razor company in living memory to come into the market, then all you need to do is go to harrys.com right now. We will give you $5 off their starter shave set. Hey, razor, three blades, and your choice of shaving cream or foaming shave gel. Not for the official Harry's price of $15, but actually for only $10 because you get $5 off if you go to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter the coupon code SLATEMONEY. And I can tell you from personal experience that the Harry's razor feels nicer in your hand than any other razor you have ever held in your life. And remember that coupon code SLATEMONEY, all one word. But in enough of razors. We need to talk about Uber because everybody is talking about Uber. Everyone is talking about Uber. Why is everyone talking about Uber, Jordan, for the seven slate money listeners who don't know why everyone is talking about Uber? So Uber has been trying to improve its public image a bit with the media, especially that's starting to question some of its business it's practices. It's hired David Plouffe. David Plouffe. Obama administration veteran, the man who masterminded the 2008 campaign, David Plouffe, to try and bring some Washington-style campaigning uh, to the company uh, and turn around its public image, or at least its media image. And so recently they had what was supposed to be an off-the-record dinner where they invited a bunch of you know media luminaries. Ariana Huffington was there. I believe Evan Hughes from The New Republic was there um, to just discuss the company and its future and, and kind of the truth behind Uber. Um, unfortunately, uh, one reporter, Ben Smith of BuzzFeed, was brought as a guest, but he wasn't told that the meeting was off the record. And so he was having dinner conversation with one of Uber's executives, Emil Michael. And this executive told him in the course of their conversation that Uber was considering batting around the idea of spending a million dollars to hire opposition researchers to start digging up dirt on the lives of critical journalists. Um, I think the direct quote in the article is on your personal lives, on your families. Uh, this is, these are the words will strike 
fear into the heart of any reporter. It sounds positively Nixonian. Uh, so Ben Smith did what I think any reasonable reporter in that situation would do, and he went and wrote an article about it, which caused an uproar. Uh, Uber quickly backtracked and started saying, no, no, this is not you know, our policy. This has absolutely nothing to do with our business practices. We would never investigate journalists. What was absolutely, I, I think, really frightening, though, for the reporters who were hearing this initially was that Uber more so than most other companies, is in a really good position to do opposition research about its critics. Why? Because they have our travel records. They know uh, if we use the service. They know where you've been. They know where you're going, where you're coming from. And so this is, you know, it brings up beyond just the issue of how rapacious is this company, how, how vicious is it really, it brings up this bigger issue of what happens when you hand over your data to a company like Uber. I just want to uh, interrupt for a moment and, and mention that we have talked about Uber before, and I was the person saying they have reputational risk <laughs> uh, because they're jerks. And but, they, but the fact is, it's not much of a risk. There's been this lovely little media firestorm, and we all get to talk about it, and the few journalists are saying, I'm deleting Uber from my phones. But realistically, this isn't going to make a dent to their revenues, to their profits, to the amount of money that venture capitalists throw at them, or anything. Maybe not in the very short term, but as I said, the Uber users are loyal to Uber because it works. But if they have another thing that works, and then why not switch if what Uber's doing is creepy? And by the way, it's creepy. But okay, so my point is that, yes, it's creepy, but this is the way that the modern economy works, is that we are handing over the details of where we are, or more precisely, where our phones are, in return for all manner of convenience, which was unthinkable just a couple of years ago. And we are handing this information over to dozens of or hundreds of different companies, all of which have this information, all of which are staffed by human beings, and all of those human beings have some greater or lesser extent of like natural gossipy tendencies where they like to look at what their users are doing. <laughs> and yes, what Uber is what said was bad. And yes, Uber has actually been caught a couple of times now, literally tracking individuals and saying, I know where you are. And we can all deplore that. And I do deplore that. But I don't think this is unique to Uber. And I do think that if we think that this is shockingly bad about Uber in particular, we're missing the forest for the trees because this is going to happen at loads of companies. I, I do tend to agree with you, Felix, on, on that point, uh, that this is not unique to Uber. What I also kind of agree with Kathy, though, that there is some reputational risk here, not necessarily because users are going to drop the service en masse. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Uh, Uber's big problem and its big fear is that a regulator is going to crack down and specifically a politically motivated regulator like a state attorney general. They can try and court regulators at taxi limousine commissions. They can try and play the inside game. But in the end, there are elected officials. There are essentially lawyers for the state who can make their name going after a big company. And the the more stories like this that kind of leak out there, the, the seamier their business looks, the easier, the, the bigger target that's going to be on their back. I think that's the concern. Especially since this. Uber is, as part of their sort of crisis management here, they're leaking some of their financials and they're making insane amounts of money and so this combination of a an evil company which b makes lots of money really does set them up for 
regulators cracking down on them pretty hard. I'm going to b- disagree with myself here. Um, <laughs> I like it when I like it when you do that. It's intellectually honest. So I actually think Uber is creepier than most companies, and I also think most companies are creepy. So here's what I mean by creepier than most companies. Like Google had an engineer that was stalking teenage girls. Okay, and they got they got caught him after a while because he was being so obvious about it. And what that means is that you know Google has employees that can look into the very like minute private details of of users. Um, but Google is a company that is mature enough to know you're not supposed to brag about that. Now, like compare that to Uber. The general manager Josh Moore of New York Uber, Uber New York, bragged to a reporter coming to talk to him about Uber that he was tracking her. He said, I'm tracking you when she got out of the Uber car. That's a brag, which goes one step beyond what people are willing to, you know, people are willing to share the private data. In other words, the reason why we're all shocked about Uber is not because it is doing something particularly uncommon, but just because it's too immature not to realize that it shouldn't talk about it. Well, and also, I mean, they had what's called the God view. This is an important thing. As, as someone who's worked in startups in, with, with data, as a data scientist, when you have a, an actual application, the God view is, like a, is a, a map view, live, real-time map view of people driving around the city where you can, with personally identifiable, uh, uh, personally identifiable information, like names attached to little cars moving around the city. So you can actually track people. And the, the claim that they are now saying that people don't have access to this application called GodView is ludicrous. You don't build an application, call it GodView, and no one uses it. Like, you build it because you want to use it, and everyone in Uber who works, at least in the technical part of Uber, has access to that. And it's clear that it, it, it was made that way. Other companies are a little bit smarter about, you know, yes, the technical people have access to the personally identifiable information, but they don't have an app for it. Well, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't say that they're smarter about that. I think they do have apps for it, and they just don't talk about it as much. I remember last year there was this big scandal around Bloomberg where the Bloomberg journalists were using the personal information of Bloomberg users to find out when people had got fired and that kind of thing. And there was a uproar about that and Bloomberg said oh yes well we've always given our journalists this ability and we probably shouldn't have been doing that and so now we're going to take that ability away from them but quite carefully never said that they take that ability from everyone away from everyone else who was working for Bloomberg Bloomberg's journalists are a tiny fraction of Bloomberg employees and as far as we know the rest of the company still has access to that information they just don't brag about it like Travis Kalanick Yes. Does. And by the way, Travis also referred to his own company as Boober because of how much sex he's getting with, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. the guy Ad is... Ad hominem. Okay, but yeah, no, I just had but, to throw but, that in. But it does... Travis Kalanick has clearly set the tone for this company. Yes. And Kara Swisher wrote a very good article about Uber in Vanity Fair this month, where a bunch of venture capital investors in Uber basically came up to her and said, yes, we know that Travis Kalanick is an asshole. That's why we invested in Uber, because if you want to be disruptive, then you need to be an asshole. Mm. I mean, I think there, there's some wisdom to that. You don't want a you know, shrinking violet going toe-to-toe with uh, taxi regulators in New York. You kind of need a jerk. Uh, it just is a question of, is he going to be so much of a jerk that he's going to bring down the wrath of the law on himself eventually? So, so let me just defend Uber for a second. People who I talk to love Uber. Um, taxi service has gotten better because of Uber. 
in especially outside of Manhattan or or in Harlem. So it hasn't been disruptive and in a good way. However, like if you look in like I've heard rumors that in Budapest, the cab drivers now have a way of for you to call a cab on your cell phone. There are alternative systems where you could get the best of Uber and not be creepy. I, I maintain that there's going to yeah, be a company. Yeah, but you know that that system in Budapest is just as creepy. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> it's, it doesn't come for free that it's not creepy. That's. I guess my point is that I think the next generation of transportation cab systems will be will go, out, go out of its way to make especially women, feel safe. And I completely disagree. And I will, I will happily enter into bet with you on this one. Every time this privacy conversation comes up, a bunch of like privacy-minded people come along and say, well, in the future, people are really going to care about privacy, and then they're going to demand it as a feature, and then the companies are going to build it into their products. And it has, has not happened, and I don't think that it will happen. We're on. All, All right, right we're on. on. I'll talk to Kathy after the show, and we'll try and formalize the terms of this bet. But first, Kathy, we are going to finish this show with you talking about Japan. So the reason we're talking about Japan right now is that it just um, admitted that it's in recession, which is bad news. The, they think the the most obvious culprit of this recession is a sales tax going from 5% to 8% recently and all the consumers stopping spending money. They've had like a history of two decades. It's called the lost decade, but it's really been like 25 years, I think, at this point. Yeah. Of deflation and low growth. And what they did, uh, this guy, their prime minister, Shinzo Abe, recently did in 2012, he started this three-pronged approach to trying to combat this. The three prongs were fiscal stimulus, monetary easing, and structural reforms. And his bet was that he could do stuff like quantitative easing in this country to get people spending more, to increase people's pocket money, and you know to raise growth. And it just, it hasn't worked. Well, it showed signs of working early on. I, I think the big picture here is you need to emphasize how radical this is for Japan. It's not just that they had this kind of ongoing loss of decade, decades. It's that they'd sort of gotten used to it in a way. And that's partly because Japan's a very old country. Um, and when you're old and you're a pensioner, deflation isn't the worst thing in the world. Uh, low inflation, uh, deflation, that, that means your, the value of your savings goes up. Forces, and there are lots of old people in Japan, yes, it should be said. lots and lots of old people in Japan. It's an aging country. And so this was the idea when Abe came in and said, we need to make ourselves a country for young men. We need inflation. We need faster growth. We're going to do it through quantitative easing, which was even as radical as it seemed in this country, it was even more crazy seeming in Japan. We're going to do it through big fiscal stimulus spending, which was considered a little bit more normal there. There, there was a lot of skepticism, but early on, it, it seemed like it was it was working. That growth was picking up a bit, inflation was picking up a bit, and the, the markets were going up. And the markets were going up. Yeah, exactly. It was like the Abe put, you know. And the but yen was going yeah, down. The yen was going down, yeah. which was important. Um, but then. Because Japan has this massive national debt, massive, massive national debt, um, I think I believe they, they spend essentially a half of their tax revenue servicing it uh, every year. There is a lot of pushback saying we need to deal with this long-term problem before it, it crushes our economy. So while they're trying to do all the stimulus, they then pass the sales tax increase. The problem is you just hiked everyone's taxes. You're combining austerity and you're with, uh, with, with stimulus, and the results are going to be kind of a mishmash, not very good. Their wages in Japan weren't growing fast enough to deal with the inflation that was coming up. So people's wages were essentially falling and people stopped spending. So to cut that long explanation short, Jordan, <laughs> are you saying that Arbonomics is working and this is just a one-off effect of the sales tax increase? Or are you saying that the Japanese national debt is so enormous that fiscal stimulus is not going to work and 
they're doomed. Okay, I'm going to put on my Nostradamus hat. I mean, right now it doesn't as with the sales tax increase, it doesn't look like it's working. Now let me just throw something. Okay, else and in. you're saying, and that is permanent. That is well, going no, that, forwards. Urbanomics is not going to work. We thought it was working for well, a while, and now it's. I not mean, working it might, depends if they can. Well, there, first off, there was a second half of it that was supposed to come into play. There was going to be another sales tax increase that was coming next year. They have delayed that, so that might have also been playing a role in, in shaping people's expectations of how to spend or what. I'm thinking, oh my God, prices are going to get even more expensive. So I would say I think that if they don't then come in and add more taxes... I'm going to go out on a limb and say economics is not going to work. Okay. okay but and, thank and the, you, Kathy, for being clear. Sales tax has pushed against it, I agree. But I think there's another thing that's even more important that's pushing against it, and it's similar to the story we have in here, which is wages. Why are wages going down? Well, one large structural reason wages are going down is because the rise of the non-regular worker in the Japan. Here's the thing. Japan has very bad safety net. So everyone has to be employed. And in fact, they have a very low unemployment rate of 3.7% or something. Um, But 40% of of jobs are being now taken, and it used to be much smaller, but it's been growing and it's continuing to grow, uh, taken by non-regular workers who don't have pensions. They don't have um, any kind of contract rights. They can be thrown out of work the day after tomorrow, and they won't have any way to live if they don't have a job. And that kind of desperation by the 40% of the workforce is keeping wages very low. And it's keeping the savings rate very high. And the more you save and the less you spend, the less you can growth you have. So that, I can see, is going to be a huge structural impediment to growth, especially, as Jordan says, in a country which is demographically aging and where more and more old people need to be supported by every worker. Yeah. On which slightly depressing note, we are going to move <laughs> on to what I hope is going to be a much more upbeat numbers round. Jordan, give us a nice, clear, happy number. Will you, can, do, can you do that for us? Mine's not nice, clear, or happy. So I'm, okay, you might no, want no. me to go last. Um, <laughs> Kathy, what's, what's your number? My number is 350. That's a good number. Why is your number you. 350? Um, 350 is the amount of dollars per month that doctors are now being paid um, by WellPoint, an insurer, to keep their cancer patients on a certain regimen. And the reason this is interesting and important is because we used to have this paternalism in medicine where you had these doctor knows best concept and the doctor gets to decide everything. That's no longer true. Now, the new paternalism, this is from a New York Times article, which I really think is really interesting. The new paternalism, it, it claims, is coming from insurance companies. Insurance companies have decided what is the best way to treat patients. Um, they probably have some reasons to think this, maybe because of evidence-based research, maybe because of money. And they really want to incentivize the doctors to treat the, the patients the way they want them to be treated. And it's, it's really interesting. It's a big change, and it might not be good for patients. Why not? Because, well, at least from the doctor's perspective, doctors think that a given patient's situation might not be understood in this, a nuanced way by the insurance company. And what seems to be good for the generic patient might not be good for a specific patient. But that's not what the insurance company is doing. Well, isn't it always good for a patient to take their medicine? I mean, It's a question of which, which medicine and which and how much and... It's more complicated than that, Felix. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This sounds like a good idea to me, but uh, you know, what do I know? Jordan, what's your number? My number is nearly $400 billion. And there's a little bit of story. It's a little bit long. But because on the show we spend a lot of time uh, talking about how you shouldn't take numbers at face value, I kind of had to share it. So last week, uh, Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying that we should finally legalize sports gambling in the United States 
because it's this massive illegal market already. Uh, there's, by some estimates, as big as $400 billion. Better off to bring that open to the open. And I, I felt myself looking at this thing, that's an enormous number. Where on earth could it have come from? And so I called up the NBA, and they, they pointed me to this old, uh, basically, Congressional Commission report from 1999 that said, okay, it's about anywhere from 88 to $380 billion. And I was like, okay, well, that looks official enough, until I, I looked at the footnote, and I realized that, well, it doesn't actually cite a study or anything. It cites a newspaper article. And after a little bit of digging and digging and digging, I realized this newspaper article was about one of the commission's own hearings, where someone had indeed said that was the range, except it wasn't actually based on anything. It was sort of he misspoke trying to summarize an entire hearing's worth of data that people had just sort of mentioned. It, the, the number 380 had sort of just gotten pulled out of thin air. So essentially, there is no real number here. What's funny is that this figure, about $380 billion, has over time made it into academic articles. It's made it into Supreme Court briefs. It's made it into other congressional testimony. And, of course, it's made it into the New York Times, all going back to this government report. Um, so it's just sort of a lesson that, you know, even if the source looks reliable, make sure, you know, it's almost like a, it's almost like a bottle of wine or something. If you, if you don't know where it came from, the statistic is probably trash. <laughs> so this is one of my favorite subjects, and I've written a lot about this in the realm of counterfeiting statistics. There, there's a huge amount of literature out there about how many billions of dollars worth of counterfeit goods get sold every year. And if you follow the footnotes on that, you wind up with exactly the same experience and it all turns out to be just pulled out of thin air. And this is important for all of us to remember that just because a number appears in the newspaper or even that a number appears in an official government report does not mean that it is a reliable number. Yeah, we, we, we all know this, but we sometimes forget it. Um, and finally, I'm very happy, very, very happy to announce my number which is right now $4,461.50. Woo! Woo! So I hope you were all listening last week to the philanthropy special. And if you weren't, then you should listen to it because it was fun and we got a lot of great feedback on it. And in a moment of somewhat foolish excitement at the end of that philanthropy special, I announced that if the Slate Money listeners were generous enough to donate some money to Dogs Without Borders between now and December the 2nd, which is the big Giving Tuesday that Rob Reich, one of our panelists, is involved in, then I would match that money. And so far, thank you all very much. We have managed to raise $4,461.50 for Médecins Sans Frontières, but there is still time. You have until Giving Tuesday, so keep those emails coming with the money that you're giving to Doctors Without Borders, not money which you already gave before the show and then sort of want retroactively to be a matching thing. No, this has to be new money and I will match it and we will see how high we can get. So thank you all very much to those of you who have done it already and please, and you know what, you can give some more and just make another donation and double it and I'll double it again. We will hopefully get the number even higher still. Thank you very much. Kathy, are you going to give some money to Doctors Without Borders? You know, I saw them all over Haiti, and i got to say they're doing great work. They are. In any case, that is it for us this week. Uh, thank you for listening to Slate Money, and please do subscribe to the show. We are easy to find. You just search for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave a review 
on the iTunes store and write to us with your comments, your kudos, your complaint, and, of course, your Doctors Without Borders donations at slatemoney at slate.com. We love to hear from you, and especially right now, we love any emails with donations in them. The producer of Slate Money was Stan Alcorn. The managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Jordan Weissman and Kathy O'Neill, I'm Felix Hammond. We will not be with you next week because we are going to be sleeping off our turkey dinners. We will come back to you the week after that. Your deadline for Slate Money at Slate.com. Donations to Doctors Without Borders is December 2, so you have a good week yet. Hey there, I'm Mike Pesca from The Gist. If you love Slate Podcasts and you're incredibly talented, that's weird. No, you should work here. And it just so happens that we're hiring. Head over to slate.com slash audio jobs to learn more about our openings for an audio project manager and two developers at slate.com slash audio jobs.